Well, good morning. That was a, uh, an introduction I certainly don't deserve. You've raised the bar higher than I was hoping you would. Well, um, good morning, Catonsville Baptist Church. Um, as your pastor mentioned, my name is Nick Gardner, um, and it is a privilege for me to be here worshiping God with you this morning. Um, I had the, the privilege of having lunch uh, with your pastor this week, um, and he was just telling me about the work that God is doing here, and I was le- I left very encouraged. So I thank God for you all, and I thank God for your pastor. Um, I- I'm sure you've heard it before, but um, this, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. Um, it was uh, in 1517 that an Augustinian monk nailed 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg. Um, and the 95 Theses were a, 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 a watershed document. But what is often forgotten um, in, this, in the Protestant Reformation, but that this Reformation was born out of an internal struggle. This was a, a man who was wrestling with God, a holy God. And, and this God of, of the medieval age was a God whose judgment was near and mercy was far The question that this monk wrestled with was, how can I approach God as a sinner? How can I come into the presence of God if I've sinned? Well, the question for him is the same for us today. Have you considered what you should do or how you should approach God when you sin? Well, thank God that Psalm 130 gives us three answers for that. And if you're following along in your pew Bible, uh, that'll be found on page 518. So follow along with me as I read God's word. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So just a little background on Psalm 130. Uh, the, Psalm 130 is the sixth of seven penitential psalms uh, in the Psalter. A penitential psalm is simply a psalm that deals with the confession of sin to God. Uh, what makes this psalm interesting uh, and unique compared to, say, Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, and 143 is its location in the Psalter. So as you, as you recall, the first line that I read was a heading. It said, A Song of Ascents. And what that tells us is that this was a psalm that the people of God would have sung as they made their annual pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And what's significant that part of approaching God is seeing oneself as unworthy and sinful in need of God's forgiveness. So for the Israelites then, and for us today, when we sin, how should we approach God? 
Answer one, which is found primarily in verses one and two, with desperate pleading for his mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, the psalmist here, he doesn't make small talk with God. He doesn't casually enter into conversation with God. He cries out from the depths. He honestly and desperately tells God what he needs. He needs God to save him. He needs God to show him mercy. So where does he go? He goes to God. That's why it says, to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. He cries out to God because he has offended God. And God alone is the one who must deliver him. That's why it's important when you read the text. It's important to recognize who the psalmist is crying out to. He's not crying out to a king or a friend or a family member. He's not crying out to to someone who can't save him. He's crying out to God. I mean, we do this naturally all the times in our lives, right? If, if uh, when my daughter cries, she, she doesn't call on her neighbor. She calls on her mother. She needs mommy. Um, and and, and when, you're, when your cable's gone out or your phone's not working, you call Comcast or you call Verizon. If your house is on fire, you call, a fire, you call the fire department. And so it is with the psalmist. He is mired in sin. So who does he call out to? The only one who can deliver him. God. But why would he, what would cause him to, to cry out so urgently and desperately? Well, the first four words of Psalm 130 are out of the depths. So because of the sin that the psalmist has committed, he cries out of the depths. And just a quick note, what, is, what does the depths mean? Well, in some sense, I guess it could be a physical pit um, or a valley where one might get stuck or stranded. But just reading through this psalm, you see iniquity, mercy, forgiveness, soul, redemption. So it's likely that this is not a physical pit, but this is a spiritual pit. This is a pit of, of gloom, a pit born out of separation from God. It's a spiritual place. And that's the worst kind of depth. And what's significant is the, what, what should be observed here is that sin has a quicksand-like effect on us. The harder we try to get out of sin on our own, the more difficult it is to escape. Which is exactly why he calls upon God. I wonder if you have experienced this gloom and darkness from sin. You know... Uh, popular preachers often say it's your best life now, but it's not. You know, the Christian life is often one of, of sadness and sorrow. Um, in fact, being a Christian may often involve more sadness and more sorrow because you understand not only why there is sorrow, but that there will be. The Christian life is a life of reality. You live in light of God's truth. And that's exactly why we need to approach God desperately in mercy. Yet this, this desperation requires a measure of humility too. When the psalmist cries out, he says, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He doesn't presume that God's going to hear him. He doesn't boast. He does not go to God demanding an audience. And, and that's exactly what happens when we sin. It creates a separation between us and God. But the psalmist here is modeling for us how we should approach God when we sin. Humbly, desperately. Yet that, that desperation, that humility does not preclude urgency. Do you see the question marks? There are three question marks in two verses. Or not question marks, excuse me, exclamation points. Question mark would be problematic, wouldn't it? There's exclamation points. He is urgently beseeching God for mercy. And there is not a dichotomy between confidence in God and humility before God. So Christian, brother and sister, when you sin, when you sin, don't go to God proudly demanding forgiveness. But go humbly beseeching God for mercy. And that's the first way that we should approach God when we sin desperately in need of mercy. The second way is going to be found in verses 3 and 4. We approach God with reverence because of his justice and his grace. Verse 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist in, in, verses, in verse 3 asks a rhetorical question. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The question is worded in such a way that the answer is obvious. No one can withstand the holy, righteous judgment of God. So the, the question gives us, a, gives us the answer that no, no one can stand. And the question provides a problem. It's problematic that none of us can stand before God. None of us could withstand or endure God's judgment. And that's a problem because we're all sinners. So an implication for you as a church, um, Catonsville, is that if God knows all sin, if God will, it will reveal the hearts of men on the last day, you should confess your sins to God now. You can't hide your sin from God. God knows all of your sin. His judgment and righteousness is meticulous. His judgment is flawless. If you think that God does not care about our sin, we are deeply mistaken. The reason that all of us cannot stand before God is because nothing can be hidden from God. No sin, no attitude, no, 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 no outward sin like gossip or adultery. No heart sin like pride, anger, or bitterness. God has complete knowledge of all of our sins. There is nothing that we can do to hide ourselves from God except by hiding ourselves in God. So James has instruction for us. In, in James 5, he says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So after you've confessed your sins to God, confess your sins to one another. There is great value in confessing your sins. It humbles us and it exalts Jesus. If you are here this morning and, and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, maybe you've been around the church for a while, maybe you're familiar with Christianity, 
But let me ask you, do you think you could withstand God's judgment? Is judgment just for Christians? It's not. But put another way, are you perfect? You know, we often say that, um, you know, my, my father-in-law is a Marine. And he says, you know, to forgive is divine. Um, to, to make a mistake is human. Marines do neither. Right? I think there's some truth in that middle section. You know, to make a mistake is to be human. But our problem is that we're worse than just make mistake makers. We're worse than imperfect. The Bible tells us that we're sinners, that we've actively rebelled against God. And what that means is that we can't withstand God's judgment. And this judgment is not a temporal judgment. It's an everlasting condemnation. But the good news is coming. And so just as verse 3 contains man's problem, verse 4 contains the solution. If verse 3 contains God's justice, verse 3 contains God's grace. Verse 4 but with you, there is forgiveness. So the psalmist confesses not only his guilt, along with the judgment that God has rendered against all mankind, but he also confesses God's grace in forgiveness. So it's in God's justice and in God's grace that we see why the psalmist is desperately pleading for mercy. God's justice condemns him. God's grace forgives him. Exodus 34 says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So what we see in Psalm 130 is that same apparent paradox that you see in Exodus 34, that God will forgive sin and yet not clear the guilty. How can that be? Well, let me re-ask verse 3, except this time not as a rhetorical question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There is one. There is one who could stand. And it's the same God who came in the flesh. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's purity was so perfect that even Pilate confessed, I find no guilt in him. Jesus Christ is the answer to the apparent paradox of how can God be just and merciful? How can God by no means clear the guilty yet forgive sin? It's because in Jesus Christ we see perfect Harmony. We see uh, uh, the God-man. We see God come down. And Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. Never breaking a single command. Doing what he always should have done. And not doing what he shouldn't have. He kept God's law perfectly. And instead of returning back to heaven, which is exactly what he deserved, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He positively obeyed God's law, and then he went to the cross to suffer. He went to the cross so that God could clear the guilty. He went to the cross and as a substitute took the wrath of God for sinners. And three days later, he was raised from the grave bodily. He ascended into heaven, presented himself as a sacrifice to God, and God accepted his sacrifice on behalf of his people.
This is the good news. Forgiveness belongs to God because God has come in the flesh and died for sinners. Christian, that's your hope. Non-Christian, if you don't believe this message, let me encourage you, come, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the God-man. Believe on the one who can forgive your sins. Believe on the one who endured God's judgment. What a Savior we have. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now, I love the hymns that we, that we sang this morning. You know, behold our God. Rock of ages cleft from me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Christian, we cling to Jesus alone. We should rejoice this week. You are forgiven of much. So then if we are a forgiven people, how then should we approach God? Well, if you look back at verse 4, uh, there's a that there, which tells us the reason for God's forgiveness. He says that you may be feared. The fear of God is the fruit of forgiveness from God. So I think what this verse also tells us is that our forgiveness is primarily not about us. Forgiveness is not giving us primarily a piece of conscience, although a wonderful thing. Forgiveness is about God. And part of the way that we show that we have believed what God has shown in his word is that we fear him. As a, a reformer puts it, he says, let the fear of the Lord be for us, a reverence compounded of honor and fear. Honor, which is obedience, which is rendered to him as father, and fear, the service that is done to him as Lord. So fear is not a, a scared, terrified feeling, but it's a reverence and an honor that belongs to God as our father. And we render service to him as he is our Lord. And it's important to remember that when we think about God and we think about fearing him, that we avoid the temptation to make him in our own image. God is not just a better, perfect version of ourselves. Now, as we sang, behold our God, and we sang, holy, 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 holy is the Lord. We are singing about a God who is awesome, a God who is transcendent, a God who is distinct, a God who is all-knowing, a God who is all-powerful, who's all-present, a God who is not like us. You know, my pastor uh, back home sometimes says, in some ways we are like God. You know, he's made us in his image. But in no way is God like us. That is a powerful summary. In short, we approach God with fear and reverence because he is holy. So Catonsville Baptist Church, when you gather together and worship God, you worship a holy God, a God who is a consuming fire. Yet he is a God who is also your Savior. So what we, what we learn is that in desperately pleading for God's mercy, we are then to revere him for his justice and grace. And the third way, the third answer to our question of how should we approach God when we sin is we approach him with patience, hoping in his word. Listen to me to verse 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord. 
my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Interestingly, in this verse, the, the verb wait is used three times. After being pardoned, the psalmist shifts to his posture. It's a posture that after being forgiven of his sin, after crying out in desperation, he waits. He's patient. He understands that his forgiveness from God is not something that he can solicit or persuade. So the psalmist here waits patiently. He waits diligently. Not because he's earned forgiveness, but God's forgiveness strengthens him in his patience. That's why he uses the, the watchman example in verses 5 and 6. And it says, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Uh, these watchmen were, were men who were designated by God. You know, like, like the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33. These were men who were, who were appointed to sit out at night and watch. They were to watch God's people. They were to watch for God's people. They were to, uh, to, to blow a trumpet in the event that there was an invasion. Now this work would have required diligence, alertness, awareness, because any sleeping on the job was literally a matter of life and death. And so you can imagine if a watchman failed. If he failed to be diligent, disastrous consequences would have ensued. But you can also imagine what would happen when it turned to dawn, when the sun came up. And the city began to stir. The watchmen would have been relieved. You know, the people would have uh, awakened. The sun would come out. It would be much easier to see. I mean, you have to remember, like, in ancient Israel, there, there wasn't nighttime vision. Like, this was a hard job. And so you can imagine how eager the watchmen would have been for the sun to come up. You can imagine the burden of another night of no, of no invasion. You know, the sun comes up, they would have been relieved of their burden. That would have been a, a, monu a monumental relief. And the psalmist here picks up on that. He picks up on the, the, the significance of and the attentiveness of the watchman. He says, just as their burden would be relieved by the sun coming up, so mine will be by waiting on the Lord. So he waits and waits, and waits. In fact, he says his burden is more than the watchman. So he actually is more diligent upon waiting on the Lord. And so how does he do this? Well, he trusts in God's word. That's what verse 5 says. And he says, in his word, I hope. So his, his waiting is not uncertain. His, his waiting and patience upon God is one that is rooted in God's word. He takes God at his word. And this is just a point here about your Bibles. You can trust your Bible. Your Bible is reliable because your God is reliable. Your Bible is trustworthy. God's word is sufficient for our waiting. And that is primarily what the Christian life is about. Is it not? Are we, not waiting? Are we not waiting the return of our Savior? Do we not sit here eagerly anticipating Him who sits in heaven and that when He comes, our bodies will be transformed like His? We wait 
in hope. We wait. And how do we know that God is faithful? Well, we, one, we, we, we see it in his word. But God is faithful because of Jesus. Or because he, we see that evidence in Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3, God promised that through Eve would come one who would crush the head of a serpent. And what happened? Well, 2,000 years later, the serpent crusher came. So when you are doubting the faithfulness of God, when you're doubting the trustworthiness of God, look to Jesus. Look to his beloved son. Look to Christ. And I think this also means we can hope with anticipation. We can hope not in vain. I mean, who's here gone to the DMV? I've gone to the DMV and I've, I've taken the ticket. And sometimes I've taken it and there's been no one else in there, so I'm not sure why I had to take a ticket. But I've taken the ticket and I've sat down and I've waited and I've waited. And then I go up to the front and I'm like, all right, I'm ready to get my license. I need to change my... And I realize I don't have a bill, right? I don't have something that confirms my address. And they say, come back when you have everything. That is waiting in vain. That is not so with God. God will, waiting on God will never be in vain. So whether you're waiting upon marriage, you're waiting upon children, you're waiting upon a doctor's report, whatever, you, whatever you're waiting upon, you can wait upon the Lord with hope. My friend, I have a friend of mine who says, uh, waiting upon God is time never wasted. That's a wonderful summary. So if we've waited, if we've called out to God desperately, as the psalmist has, and we, we reverently fear God because of his grace and his justice, and then we've waited upon the Lord, what are we to do next? Well, verses 7 and 8 give us a glimpse. And this is an application I want us to consider. We should tell others to do the same. So in 1 through 6, the psalmist has cried out of the depths in misery for God's mercy. He's confessed in 3 and 4 his own guilt and the guilt of all mankind. And then he's contemplated that with God there is forgiveness. And he's trusted in God's word. So what does he do? Instead of looking inward, he turns outward. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Again, we see, a, we see an exclamation point. This is clearly a man who's been forgiven of his sins. And that's what happens when we're pardoned. When we are pardoned, we, we become those who proclaim. If you're pardoned, you should proclaim. Because God's pardon is so good. And that's what the psalmist does here. He has been pardoned, and then what does he do? He says, hey, Israel... Come experience this God who has just forgiven me. Turn and hope in him. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. I mean, and this is natural for us as human beings, right? Like, we are made to tell others what we love. You know, if you have a favorite restaurant, you may say, hey, this, this is a good place to eat. You want to come with me? Or if you, you notice something on Facebook, what do you do? You share it. If you have a great book, you say, hey, you should read this book. You know, we are made to tell others what we love. And so often the problem is what we love. So the Christian, we should be people who are known for talking about what we love. And what we love 
should be God. So brothers and sisters, Catonsville Baptist Church, when you have experienced great forgiveness by God, encourage your fellow church members. You know, Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what does he say? You sing songs. You, you, you vocalize and verbalize what you've experienced inwardly. If you are known by God, help others to come know this God. So be marked by encouraging one another in Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is that God has entrusted to his people the responsibility of telling others about him. You know, that's, that's primarily how people come to faith. Through people letting, getting to know one another and telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, strive to be a community that has a shared relationship around Jesus and that overflows to you talking about Jesus. Now I think it's also important to remember um, it's not just each other, it's not just us as the, the body of Christ who needs to know about Jesus. Verse 3 reminds us, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You know, I, you know, hell is as real as the pew you are sitting on. Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family members who don't know Jesus need to know him. Because they will not withstand the judgment of God. They need to know Jesus. And so we need to know the gospel so that we can faithfully tell them about the God who will save them from their sins. There is forgiveness with God, so we need to tell others about this forgiveness. So then why then should we tell others about? Why should we tell each other to hope in the Lord? Verse 7 says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The, the four in that verse tells us that the, the tells us the basis for the preceding statement. Hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love. So the if you've noticed throughout this verse, there is forgiveness with God. There is steadfast love with the Lord. There is plentiful redemption with him. We serve a God who doesn't change. We serve a, a God who loves. We serve a God who is gracious, who abounds in steadfast love towards his people. We serve a God who redeems. We, have a, we serve a God who has a love that is deep and wide. Richard Sibbs says that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That is a wonderful truth. And there is never a lack of a redemption in God's economy. You know, God always has sufficient supply. God's love never runs out. It never changes. So Christian, if you are doubting whether or not you're a Christian, look to Jesus. It's there where you see the, the pinnacle of God's steadfast love for his people. Because Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday and will be forevermore. The steadfast love of God never ceases. It can never end because God has loved you from eternity. It has no beginning. So it can have no end. Did you notice again though, in verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
all. That all is very important. So what we learn from the all is that Christ is a sufficient Savior. There is no partial redemption. You were not partially saved. Christ died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. The death of Christ is a sacrifice once for all. There is no need to repeat the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, in his death, did everything that we needed in his resurrection to save us from the wrath of God. All we do is simply believe and receive Jesus. There is an eternal, unchanging hope in Jesus Christ. Christ is sufficient. So we should get back to that monk. Um, That monk was Martin Luther. That monk was a man who wrestled with his sin before a holy God. The question of where can I find a gracious God? How can I approach God when I sin? Well, that monk found the answer. It was in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So how can we approach a holy God when we sin? Well, we approach him in Jesus Christ. Praise God that that monk found an answer to that question. And I pray that this week you too would find that answer. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are a a God who loves your people. And you have supremely done this for us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, those who are here who do not know him, we pray that they would be found in him uh, with a righteousness that comes through faith. And Father, those who do know him, we pray you would strengthen us and help us to remember, oh, that you're a God of steadfast love and with you is a plentiful redemption. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.